Uh, good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's uh, so good to see all of you here this morning to, to worship with us. We are in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've done a number of kind of mini-series in Matthew, and right now we've been looking at what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven through the stories that he tells, which we call parables, in this Gospel of Matthew. So this morning we're in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, it, is, it is a very, very powerful image of what it looks like uh, to enter into and to live in the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is a kingdom that does not uh, run on a works righteousness basis, but really at the center of the kingdom of heaven is this principle of grace, uh, so that the last become first and the first last. And so it's a great opportunity for us to, uh, to meditate on this together this morning. We're going to back up into uh, Matthew 8, 19 and read verse 16. In verses 27 through 30, and then go to chapter 20 and read the parable in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. So uh, you can follow along in the Bible if you like to. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me, and then also it's, going, it's printed for you in your worship folder so we can read together, okay? Beginning in Matthew 19, verse 16, Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, now watch his question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is the rich young ruler. He's come to Jesus seeking to know what he must do, what good deed he must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember the story, a conversation ensues, and eventually he walks away sad because he's not willing to give up everything Jesus tells him he must give up. And then in verse 27, then Peter said in reply to what he's just seen, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now here's the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or, you do, or do you begrudge my generosity? And so again, the last will be first, and the first last. This is God's word. Uh, just before this parable in Matthew's Gospel is a scene where Jesus is approached by a young man who in most of the scriptures is titled the rich young ruler. He was very successful, apparently very rich, someone with a great deal of power and influence, we might say. And he has a question, which I printed for you here. And his question is just this. Look again at verse 16. 
what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, what's implied in that question? That you have to do something, right? That there's something to do to get eternal life. That you have to accomplish something. That you, have, you earn eternal life by following the rules or performing the right rituals or you know, doing some you know, great deed, proving your devotion through some sort of sacrifice. And the young man thinks, he thinks that it's good people who get eternal life. So he wants to know what good thing he has to do to prove that he is a good person who is worthy of being given eternal life. Now the conversation goes on uh, between this young man and Jesus until he eventually walks away because what happens is, is Jesus hits on the one thing, the one issue in this man's life that he's not willing to contend with. Uh, he tells him to go and sell his possessions and give them to the poor. And the man just, he's very wealthy and he just can't do it and he walks away. Now Peter, here comes Peter like blood in the water. Peter, on the prowl, steps right into the situation to make sure. See, this man has just refused to walk away from what Jesus has told him to walk away from. Here comes Peter, right into the middle of the thing, to make sure that Jesus knows, that he remembers, that he and the rest of the disciples have done what this young man was not willing to do. Look what he says. See, verse 27. See, we've left everything and followed you. You can just feel... Peter's swelling with pride at his willingness to sacrifice when others aren't willing. He says, see. I mean, and that word is very, I mean, it's very specific in the Greek. It's, behold, look at me, is what he's saying. The sacrifice that I've made. Right? I mean, he's making much of his and the other disciples' willingness to leave their lives and follow. But watch, why? Why? What does Peter feel the need? Why does he feel the need to point out the good deeds he's done? Look at it again. Behold, you know, look at me, Jesus. Behold us. The good deeds that we have done. We've left everything and followed you. Now look at verse 27. What then will we have? Now, do you see that? I mean, Peter's theology is the same as the rich young man's. He too thinks that good, moral, committed people get eternal life. And who could be more moral or more committed than Peter, right? I mean... He assumes that because he's been obedient, that that obedience has merited him some sort of payment that Jesus owes him. And he wants to know what the payout will be. What will we have? What will we get? But you see, both the rich young ruler and Peter have it all wrong. They think that entering the kingdom of heaven and experiencing its power and its blessing is dependent upon your spiritual resume. They think that what matters is your performance. And that is what we would call a religious orientation or a works righteousness system where religion is this basic belief that I follow the rules, I work hard, I obey God, I do all the right things, and then, you know, then on the other side of that, he will love and accept me. It's the basic idea in every one of the major world religions, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But it's even possible, what we're going to learn from this parable is it's even possible to be a Christian, to believe in Jesus, to have been in the church for a very long time, and to still be fundamentally operating with this kind of religious orientation, this works righteousness system. And Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 20 to show that the gospel, the gospel is something entirely different. That the kingdom of heaven revolves around sovereign grace, the sovereign grace of God, that you don't do good deeds so that God will love and accept you. No, that's religion. The gospel is God loves and accepts you out of the sheer good pleasure of his will, and he's adopted you into his family in Christ Jesus. And because of the work of Christ on your behalf, you know, and knowing that, it's knowing that that propels you out into the harvest field to work and sweat and toil 
for his sake and for his glory. So we need to explain this a little more, especially for those of you who are new to Christianity or not yet Christians or maybe just confused and investigating. And so we're going to talk about the gospel versus religion and how those things are different by looking at this parable this morning in three things. First, how we're going to ask, how does this parable illustrate religion? So how does the parable illustrate religion? Secondly, how is the gospel different from religion? And then thirdly, what are the implications for entering and living the kingdom of heaven? Those are the three points before us this morning from this parable, beginning with just this. How is the parable an illustration of religion? So let's, let's go back to the parable for a minute, and let me just do some explanation. Okay, and here's what's happening in this parable. It's harvest time, and the master of the vineyard goes to find workers to help in the harvest. Now, the work day at this time would have been, get this, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So he goes out at 6 a.m., and he finds workers, and he negotiates a price with them, one denarius for one day's work. That was pretty standard working wage for that day. Then he realizes there's more work to be done than these workers can manage. So at 9 o'clock in the morning, he goes out, and he finds some people that are kind of idly standing by in the marketplace, and he puts them to work. And you'll notice there he promises to do right to them. Then he goes out again at noon, and then again at 3, and then... Again, finally, at 5 p.m., which would have been just one hour before quitting time, and he does the same thing. So 6 o'clock comes, and he begins to pay out wages to those who've worked. And he begins with those who've worked just one hour. And they come, and they're giving a, given a denarius, which is the payment for a full day's work. So, obviously, right, those who've worked the whole day, who've worked 12 hours, if those guys get paid a whole day's wage for one hour of work, then we've worked 12 hours, obviously we're going to get more. You'll get 12 denarius, right, or something to that equivalent. But when those who've worked three hours and those who've worked six hours and those who've worked nine hours and those who've worked 12 hours come and we're paid the same as those who worked one hour, uh, they get very upset. And Jesus has to say, this is the way the kingdom of God works. Now, why did those who were hired first assume they would receive more than those who were hired last. I mean, just think about that. Why does that make sense even to us, that, that things would work that way, right? That, because our immediate reaction is that's what's fair. Right? I mean, that's what's right. They'd worked harder and longer, and therefore were deserving of a better wage. It's so ingrained in us, this way of thinking. I mean, from every sphere of our life, this is ingrained in us. From how we, you know, a waitress all the way to a major league baseball player, this is ingrained in us. You go to the restaurant and you have a waitress and she does a poor job at serving you and what do you do? You leave her a very meager tip or you go and she does a great job and so you think, wow, she's really deserving of a, of a really good tip and so you tip her very well. But it's based upon her performance all the way to, to you know, Guys like Maddie who have to, every year at the end of the year, their wage for the next year, they literally have to sit down with an arbiter and say, okay, here's how many hits, here's how many RBIs, here's how many doubles, here's how many errors you made. Here's, we're going to calculate all that stuff up and base solely on what you've done. Here is the, the number that, here is your value. I mean, but, but, but in every shade in between those things. If you're in business, you know what a performance-based bonus is or a performance-based raise. It's the same idea in the current debate about performance-based pay for teachers, right? Perform and you'll be rewarded. I mean, this is the way of the world. This is how it works. But I want to help you see it's not just a facet of our cultural situation. It's a principle that's a part of our fallen human nature. It's the reason, the reason it's out there 
And what we experience is because it's in here, we've internalized it. It's a fundamental principle for how we understand the way the world works. Martin Luther, who we've already spoken of, said that religion is the default mode of the human heart, this desire to achieve, right? To perform, to accomplish something, to succeed, to do quote-unquote good works, as the rich young ruler said, in order to enter heaven. And if you look closely, even at all the major world religions, okay? So take them one by one. You'll see that this was true of even all the religious impulses that have kind of made up time and culture throughout history. It was true of the ancient Near Eastern religions that Israel found themselves engaged in in the Old Testament. They believed this. Baal was God, and Baal sent the rain. And so what you had to do was you had to do everything Baal told you to do. You had to do the rituals, and you had to make the sacrifices, and you had to do, you had to, you'd follow the rules very meticulously. And if you did so, you could appease Baal. He would be happy with you, and then he would send the rain, and your crops would get you know, water, and then everything would be okay, right? And Israel was always constantly, constantly warned by God of kind of coming into the system, but nevertheless they seemed to be unable to withstand the temptation to, and even in Judaism, this idea of how you related to God and his law began to form. And so when you read the New Testament, the early Christians were really having to try to shake off this part of their Jewish history, right? There was a group called the Judaizers that constantly infiltrated the church and who went around trying to get the early Christians to get circumcised and to follow the Mosaic law and to do all the things they were supposed to do in order to be right with God because they were still kind of living in this religious construct. Follow the rules, right? That's how you get God to love and to bless you. You've got to do everything God tells you to do and obey all the law and then at the end of all of your obedience then maybe he'll be happy with you and give you what you want. But it's not just in that. It's there in Islam, right? I mean, what does Islam say? The five pillars. This is how you gain Allah's favor. You pray and you fast and you go on pilgrimage and you give alms. And the more radical branches, it goes so far, you kill yourself for the sake of killing infidels and prove yourself worthy. And by that that proving of yourself to be worthy, you gain paradise. They're in Buddhism. The last reported words of the Buddha were, strive without ceasing. So you see this? I mean, work hard. You know, do the right thing. Obey the rules. Strive, strive, strive. So that by your religious devotion, you can earn the favor of the gods. But what Jesus wants us to see is that Christianity is something entirely different. That the gospel is something different altogether. Jesus is warning us, however, that if it's possible to bring this very thing into Christianity. So in 1 Corinthians 13, for example, Paul warns that spiritual activity and good deeds and all these things can become just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, he says. In other words, you can do good deeds. You can, I mean, you can do good things. You can be a nice person. You can even um, you know, be in leadership in a church and be doing all that stuff to get God's attention and to make him pay attention to you and to try to attract him and to wake him up, to be ganging a gong, to, to draw attention to yourself so that God might look at you and think, wow, there's a fine person and give his love and blessing to you. You can read the Bible, you can go to church, you can do all these things as a way of clinging a symbol, but that's not how Christianity works. Because you see, in Christianity, you sacrifice and you sweat and you do good, and you work, but not to try to create a spiritual resume. Christians don't do those things because they're trying to earn God's love and acceptance. They do them because they already have it in Jesus. And the one is a works-based righteousness. I am loved because I work hard and I sacrifice. The other is grace-based righteousness. I work hard and I sacrifice because I'm already loved. And this is what Jesus is trying to expose to us. But look here. What gets fascinating in this parable is where this kind of works-based righteousness really begins to get exposed. 
in these people. Look down in verse 11 when the, the payment starts to come. And you'll see that those who are really kind of committed to this way of living, look where they get exposed. There's two things that we see here. First, they envy, and then they grumble. They envy, and they grumble. So here is kind of peeling back another layer of your heart here. So look at this. The workers in Jesus' story have worked hard all day long, and so they expect to be paid appropriately. They've earned their pay. They deserve it. They've worked hard for it. And Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful of looking at your life that way of looking at your stuff and thinking it's yours, that you've earned it, that you can do whatever you want to with it. See, what happens here with these people is they don't connect. They don't connect what they receive to the generosity of the master. And that's the rebuke he offers, verse 15. Look at that. Do you begrudge my generosity? That's what he, that's what he charges them with. You see, gratitude is the response to generosity. It's the recognition that all of life is gift. Every breath is gift. The sunrise this morning is sheer mercy. That everything in my life is gift, but not for these people. They don't believe that. They've worked hard. They've paid their dues. They've earned what they have. Which is why they're so upset that others who've not worked as hard as they have are being treated better than they think they deserve. And it all goes back... It all goes back to their performance-based mindset. It comes out of that. The people who think it's hard work that counts, right, often feel mistreated. Now think about this. People who, people who work hard and think it's hard work that counts, here's what happens. They often feel mistreated in the good treatment of someone who they think is less deserving. And that's exactly what happens. Look at, it all day, look at the all-day workers in Jesus' parable. They, f- they feel mistreated by the master's generosity to the other workers. Their lives are unraveling. All of their assumptions and motivations about life are falling apart. Their very personhood, this sounds melodramatic, but their very personhood in some senses in jeopardy. And look at what they say, verse 12. They say, you've made them equal to us. Now what, what does that expose? What's their assumption? They're not equal to us. We are better than they are. We work harder than they do. We deserve more than they do, but what happens with grace is grace comes in to the middle of that kind of constant diagnosis of things, and grace takes people who, you know, the the most deserving and the least deserving, and makes them equal, and they get really upset. That's why they're angry. They deserve the kind of generosity, not the other workers, because they've put in their time and they've done their work. And it makes me think of the story of the elder brother and the prodigal son. You remember the story of the brother? The one brother who goes away and he squanders his father's property and, and prostitutes and, and drinking and partying and he comes home and the older brother who is just so, just considers himself to be such a moral, upright person who's, he stayed home, he did all of the work, he picked up the slack when his brother was gone and yet when his brother comes home, he's received joyfully and thrown a party and the older brother can't stand it. Why? Because it should be his party. That should be my party. I deserve that party. He doesn't deserve that party. And his whole system of what he believes starts to crumble around him because at fundamentally what he believes is, is you work hard, and that's what makes you a good person. You work hard. That's, that's what's important. Hard work. He's just been out there fooling around. And see their envy. You see this, this envy that, that begins to take place in these people at how they're treated and how others are treated. Look what it does. It creates discontent, and then they begin to grumble. Now this is great. The King James Version, if you have it, it's murmured. And I like that word, murmur, 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 murmur. You know, it's just this, 
Jonathan laughs because I, I call it chirping. Just right. It's just this this low rumbling of complaint and negativity. Right, an undercurrent of dissatisfaction or self-pity or discontent that bubbles up into every conversation. It's always something to complain about, always something to be unhappy about. And I want to warn you that if, if you can look into your life and you see that this, this is a serious sin. In Jude, Jude writes of the coming judgment against human rebellion and sin, and the ungodly are characterized like this in Jude. They are grumblers and malcontents. In number 16, God's people are wandering in the wilderness, and there's this little group that can't seem to get happy with what God is doing. And so it's, you're just told there they keep grumbling, and they grumble, and they grumble, and they grumble, and they complain, and they argue, and they whine, and they grumble. And eventually God says, move away from them. And all of Israel moves away from them, and the earth opens up and swallows them whole. I mean, what Jesus wants us to see... I mean, what's really happening with these workers who've worked all day and are grumbling because they've not gotten the treatment from the master they think they deserve? They're charging him with wrongdoing. At least that's how he understands their complaint. Look at verse 13. He has to say to them, I'm, I, am I doing you, I'm doing you no wrong. He wasn't. He paid them what they agreed to. But their accusation was, you know, that, but that was what their accusation was. Their envy had less, led to their discontent. And here's what Jesus is trying to unveil for us, he's saying, if you continue to operate according to a performance-based righteousness system, rather than the gospel, then when you do everything you think you're supposed to do, you follow the rules, you sacrifice, you work hard, you do all of those things, and the reward for that hard work doesn't come, or it's given to somebody else, then the impulse of your heart will be to begin to blame God and to accuse him of doing wrong to you, and that's what grumbling is. And that's what complaining about our circumstances is. That's what whining is. It's charging God with wrongdoing. It's saying, you don't know what you're doing. I deserve better than this. Do you see what that exposes? Do you see what that exposes? Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, writes, he says, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against this authority. Now listen to this. He says, if you seek to control God through your obedience, then all your morality is just a way to use God to make him give you the things you really want. Do you see what he's saying? I mean, he's saying religious people are often motivated in their obedience by a desire to gain control over God and to put him in their debt. I live a good life, but it's only a means to an end. It's a way, I live a good life because it's a way to get God to give me the things I really want. And then when he doesn't, well, that's when I really get mad because he's not coming through on his end of the deal. And that's gross, right? I mean, that's selfish and arrogant and narcissistic and just gross. But we do it, and Jesus is issuing a warning that despite our best intentions, unless this performance-based religious impulse is rooted out of our heart, then even our obedience will be tainted by selfishness and sin. We'll be doing good deeds, but we'll be doing good deeds and then immediately turning to him and say, hey, what do I get for this? And so the parable illustrates religion and the danger of operating within religious workspace righteousness system as a way of life. So how do we overcome it? 
And the parable answers that as well by showing us how the gospel differs from it. So you have to see, the way you overcome this impulse in your heart and life is you have to see that salvation is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. See, the parable is meant not only to illustrate the danger of religion, but notice, but it's to show how the gospel is different from religion. Religion says obey God and then you'll be accepted. The gospel says you're accepted and loved through Jesus Christ no matter who you are or what you've done because of the work of Christ. And so now go and obey him. And that's what this parable is about after all. You see, the workers who worked only one hour did not deserve the wage they were paid, did they? I mean, let's be honest. Did they deserve the wage they were paid? No. It was a gift. It was a token of the master's generosity. They only worked one hour. And they got paid for the whole day. They didn't deserve that kind of payment, but here's the thing. (laughs) But here's the thing. Neither did those who worked all day. You see, that's the point Jesus is trying to make. See, most of us come to this parable... And let's be honest, we see ourselves as the all-day workers in the story, don't we? I mean, that's, where I, that's immediately where I find myself. Man, I am the guy who's worked 12 hours. And what Jesus is trying to help us to see is Jesus wants us to see ourselves as those who've come at the end of the day. This whole way of thinking of who is more deserving and who's less deserving and who has put in more time than everybody else, that all of it is completely contrary to the way the kingdom of heaven works. That, that this idea that my hard work, man, I, I am, God must look down at me and think, man, he's a valuable asset because of all the work I've put in, is just just nonsense. And Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 7 that I think is so powerful. He's just speaking about this very thing, and he, he, he says to his disciples, he says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Hey, come at once and recline at the table. No, will he rather not say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you will eat and drink, because that's what servants do. And then he goes on and he says, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? That's silly. And so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not made up of the most deserving, the most committed, the brightest, and the best. No, no, we're all undeserving. And the Bible says that even our best efforts are stained with sin so that they're called filthy rags we've forfeited any claim to god's love and he should in reality come and vanquish us that's what we deserve but he doesn't instead he loves us he rescues us he blesses us why and why why does he do that you see that's the question why what's he motivated by in that he should destroy us because of our sin but he hasn't so why And the answer is right there in the master's explanation to the all-day workers. He says in verse 15, am I not allowed? That word means free. Am I not free? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The answer, of course, is yes. He can give whatever he wants to, to whomever he wants, for whatever reason he might come up with. Because it all is his anyway. And the same is true of God. Everything in heaven and earth belongs to him. And all of the good that comes into our lives and all of the generosity God shows to us. The answer is not that we've earned or deserved any of that stuff in any way. The answer for why he chooses to bless us and save us and do good to us can only be found in his sovereign grace. And that's what's so offensive to people who are still operating in a works righteousness system. That's where the anger comes from. Because if you're angry with God, I mean, you know, if you're angry with God, because you feel like he hasn't come through, do you realize you're angry because at the end of your hard work you can't control him? Your plans to control him have been frustrated, and that's where the anger comes from. And see, 
See, religious people resent that God has the right to do whatever he desires, that he's absolutely free, that he can't be manipulated, he can't be controlled. He owes us nothing. And no amount of good deeds or service can put him in our debt. He is the sovereign king of the universe, and he's gracious to whom he will be gracious. And he has compassion on whom he will have compassion. And so the source of his love for us is not in us, but in his sovereign good pleasure. I mean, do you understand the implications of that? He doesn't love us because we're lovely. He doesn't do good to us because we've been good. You know, it's not like Santa Claus coming to town, right? I mean, it's, it's completely different. He, you know, all of the good that comes to us is ours because of Jesus Christ alone. And all the blessing that is ours has been purchased for us by Jesus. Salvation, as we read in Ephesians 2, salvation is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it. We can never be good enough. And if you're a Christian, listen, if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, then, then all you need to become a Christian is nothing. So do you have nothing? Of course we all have something, don't we? I mean, the rich young ruler had his good name. Peter had his moral accomplishments. We all have something we're looking to for righteousness, something that we excel in, some achievement we're hoping in. We put our you know, confidence in, I'm a good parent, or you know, look at my kid's behavior, or I'm theologically orthodox, or uh, you know, I speak in tongues, or my business is successful, or whatever it might be. But Jesus says what you really need is nothing, and until you have nothing, you'll be forever striving to keep that something because it's like life and breath to you. You'll work and work and work and strive and strive and strive and exhaust yourself and wear yourself out. But don't think that's the way the kingdom of heaven works. What you really need is nothing. But nothing's the one thing nobody has. And so once you have nothing, then you can get busy at the work of the kingdom. And so we need to finish. And so here then are the implications. If this is the way things really work, here then are the implications for living in the kingdom of heaven. Just this summary statement in verse 30 and then again in verse 16. The first shall be last. And the last shall be first. Now, what does that mean? Well, who are the first? Who are the first? They are those, like the rich young ruler, the educated and wealthy, the powerful and influential, the successful. They are like Peter and the other disciples, the, the morally accomplished, the committed, the spiritual celebrities, the, the professional Christians. And what's true of all these people is that they are used to doing good deeds, right? They're used to, if, if you've been successful, you're probably used to being rewarded, you perform, and then you're rewarded for performing well. Because that's the way the world works. And that puts you, what, what, the, what Jesus is teaching is, if that's you, that puts you at a disadvantage because the kingdom of heaven doesn't work that way. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven through your accomplishments. Just the opposite. It's your, <laughs> it's your failures and your sins and your weaknesses that gain you access. I mean, can, can you wrap your head around that? And that's why the first are last, because they have to unlearn so much. They have to stop relying on their own strength and their moral achievements, but not those who are last, not the poor and the broken and the needy and the technicolor sinners. These people that live their whole life knowing that they don't measure up, and that's why, uh, that's why grace is really good news to them. But you see, at the center, at the center of the life and power of the kingdom of heaven is the life and death of Jesus Christ. And what the gospel teaches us about the kingdom is that in Jesus, here's what happens. Here's the heartbeat of the kingdom of heaven, and that is that in Jesus the first willingly became the last. Jesus was rich, and he became poor. He was powerful, and he stripped himself of his power and became a servant. He was the eternal son of God, and yet he entered time and space to be born to peasant people.
people in a feeding trough. He was eternally beloved by his heavenly Father and yet was cast out and rejected. He was sung about and celebrated by the angels from all eternity, yet became a curse and hung upon a cross, bruised and broken and alone. From all eternity he had been the first, the most worthy, the most beautiful, and he became the last because it was the only way for him to have us, to have our sins forgiven and to give us a righteousness that could sustain us before the wrath of God. He died the death of a despised criminal, and that great work has shaken the foundation of the universe. It has created a whole new reality called the kingdom of heaven, and in this new reality, the first are the last, and the last are the first. Now, practically, and I'm done. What does this mean? Here's what it means. First, if you would call, if you would be one who would be called first in our society, if you are among the strong or the rich or the educated, then what Jesus is saying is, is don't be proud. If you are first and you want to live in the kingdom of heaven and experience its power and its blessing, then you have to be humble. And if you look at your life and you're overwhelmed like me, I mean, this really, I, this is, I'm in this category. I look at my life and I'm overwhelmed by all the good things that I enjoy. But what I can't do is I can't begin to think, wow, man, I really deserve this. I've done well. Now, you see, if I do that, then I still think it's my good works that have earned God's love and blessing and favor, but it doesn't work that way. And so if you're proud, if you're proud, you're making too much of your great performance. You're glorying in your accomplishments and not in the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So remember, the first will be last. The Bible says God opposes the proud. But secondly, if you're someone who would be characterized as last, if you're tired or you're weak or you're poor or you're needy, you're overwhelmed, don't be discouraged. Like if you feel like if you feel if you're here this morning and you feel like you're in last place and you come into the kingdom of heaven, then it may not change your status. You may still be last, but you'll be hopeful. If you're going through a hard time and things are tough and it's just difficult, don't assume it's because you've done something wrong. Don't blame yourself. Worse, worse. Don't blame God. Don't look at your life and think God hates me. Because if you do, then you're still operating in a religious construct too. You're still, you still think it's your good works that earn you God's love and acceptance, and you've obviously blown it because he hates you. So if you're discouraged, you're making too much out of your sin and your failure. You're glorying in your sin and not in his grace. See how that works? So remember, the last is first. So what does it mean for us to live in the kingdom of heaven? And how do you know if you've entered and begun to experience the kingdom's power? Well, at the times when you're strong, when things are going really well, and when you feel like you're in first place, then you can be grateful and humble but never proud. And in the times when you're exhausted and it feels like life has run you over and you're in last place, you can be hopeful and never totally discouraged. See, that's how you know that grace is beginning to take root in your heart and to, and to weed out this works righteousness, this religious impulse that is so... That's how you know. That's how you know that grace is beginning to replace religion. And that's what we so desperately need. And so let's pray together that God would come and do that work in us beginning this morning. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, give us the courage to sing with Terry in just a minute this song that says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. To be able to turn, to repent, not only of our sins, but of all of our righteousnesses as well. All of the things that we're looking to to provide uh, a status for us, all the good works that we're hoping are going to gain us your acceptance and love, they are the very things that will keep us from ever experiencing the acceptance and love you already have showered on us in Jesus Christ, in the sheer good pleasure of your will. Oh Lord, open our eyes to see and our, our eyes open our eyes to see and our ears to hear 
the wonderful promise of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. May it begin to reverberate in our hearts so that those who are discouraged might be lifted up and those who are arrogant and proud might be brought low. That we all might bear fruit that would be to your glory. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Do this without it feeling abrupt. So I'm going to just probably do it. But I'm going, instead of a benediction, I'm going to dismiss us uh, to the home of Josh and Heather Snively. It's at two, is it 205, I think. Is that right? 205. Uh, Lake Summit Drive. You can go right down uh, Dundee to Carl Floyd. Take a ride on Carl Floyd. Take a ride on Overlook. And then immediately once you get down to Cypress Gardens Boulevard, immediately across, you'll go on Lake Summit Drive. That's how you get there. Uh, their, next, their home and their driveway is available for you to park. The, ne- the neighbor's to the right of them. Right, Josh? If you're looking at the house to the right, we can park there. And there's also a little triangle place kind of in the middle of all those roads there where you can park your vehicles, and it's going to be, you know, fun. So please come uh, and celebrate. We have four baptisms to do uh, there today, and we'd love to, especially if you're a member of our church. If you're a member of our church, please come and support the church in its worship uh, and its work by coming there. And so I'd like to just pray for us and then dismiss you, and then I'll, we'll give a benediction once we've baptized over there. I'm gonna tell, we're going to start over there about 11.15. That's 20 minutes from now. That's plenty of time for you to kind of gather your stuff and get going between 11.15 and 11.20, and we'll be done by 11.30, okay? So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your grace that you are the only one who could rescue, and you did it willingly. You did it without thought. You came all the way from heaven and earth uh, to love us, to save us, and to equip us with the Spirit, and so help us now as we go and seek to put these things into practice, to hear your words and put them into practice. Be with us as we gather now to baptize and to celebrate those coming to faith, uh, and, and, and come and meet with us as we do that. Uh, thank you for all those who attended this morning. Be with them as they go, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.